As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm What Happened. I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> Joining us on the pod today, right here in New York City, the Daily Beast's Aaron Ryan. And later, we'll talk to the host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. Guys, it's Hillary Clinton Day. We are going to Chappaqua <laughs> to interview Hillary Clinton. To the woods. To the woods. Lovett has been asking for this since the day we began this podcast. I, I, well, it felt inevitable. Just begging for it. Okay, let's calm let's, down. I didn't even no. send one email. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll get to this. A um, few housekeeping items. Uh, we still have some tickets left for our tour. Go to crooked.com slash tour to buy some. And we are adding a live taping of Love It or Leave It right after Pod Save America in Madison, Wisconsin, on October 5th. Tickets we're now. Huge news. We're basically not going to leave until uh, <laughs> Paul Ryan does. <laughs> <laughs> on Pod Save the World this week, Tommy talks to a Republican from Texas. Congressman Will Hurd, former yeah. CIA officer, served in Afghanistan, now making laws. Uh, I haven't done the interview yet, so I can't tell you how it went, but I bet it's gonna I'll be let you know about Republican awesome. Congressman. Tomorrow, yeah. He's a Republican. Did you say that already? I did. I, I wasn't did. listening. I was waiting for my turn to talk. <laughs> That's... That's a great summation of what happens here on Pod Save America. Let's begin with Hurricane Irma. Another massive historic storm. Uh, It is thankfully weakened from a Category 4 to a Category 1 hurricane as it makes its way up the Florida coast. At least four deaths reported in Florida, 27 dead in the Caribbean, and almost 6 million people in Florida without power. Storm surges and flooding are still a threat all the way up Florida from Miami to Naples as far north as Georgia. So thank God this wasn't as damaging as it was first predicted to be. But on the heels of Harvey and with Hurricane Jose not far behind, I want to talk about the role of climate change since not nearly enough people. Not appropriate. In the... <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about cause and not effect now. in our politics. Not today. So, so let us you begin there. You can't talk there. about it now, but it's also important not to talk about it later. <laughs> uh, there's never a good time. It's just divisive. So this is what Scott Pruitt, who is our administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency has said that it is not appropriate to talk about climate change. It's a little bit like when Republicans say it's not the time to talk about gun safety after a school shooting. Exactly. Now we're be, doing this on climate it change. It would be as if, like, after, like, 50 people got E. coli from Chipotle, that the head of the FDA was like, now is not the time to talk about food safety. We eat Chipotle regularly here at Crooked Media. I love Chipotle. Um, ba- I, honestly, it was, it was a boon for day. me. It was a boon for me because I went right in and they were just <laughs> giving, no out, line. They were giving out burritos love left it. and right. Was eating New respect ta- for the sneeze guard, though. <laughs> <laughs> love it was eating Taco Bell for breakfast. A Chipotle opened down the street mm-hmm. and now he eats some Chipotle. I yeah, think you mean upgrade. Del Taco. There was a piece recently, though, that, that the EPA now has a guy, a political staffer, whose like, sole job is to go through research grants monitoring them for the double C word, climate change. They've, they've turned it into like an epithet over there at the EPA. I mean, they, that's how like far from logic and reason we've gotten under this administration. It's just like a head couldn't be deeper in the sand. Uh, some sensible Republicans here, the Republican mayor of Miami disagreed with Pruitt, said, if this isn't climate change, I don't know what is. John McCain said something similar when he was asked on Jake Tapper's show, which is the only Sunday show 
anywhere that mentioned climate change. Yeah, Sam Stein pointed out that it's been two weeks since the Trump administration was asked about climate change. So the talking point on the right here is, well, the first talking point is climate change not real. The second talking point is climate change doesn't cause bad weather. And they have some meteorologists and they have some... And so I want to dispense with that because no one is arguing that climate change caused the hurricane. What we're arguing is that climate change makes bad weather catastrophic and makes exacerbates the effects of bad weather it makes, like hurricanes. It makes bad storms more likely and it makes storms worse. That's, it, yeah. And, and that's just true. And if sea levels rise in a place like Miami where storm surge is a huge problem, it's an even greater problem. Well, right. And, that, and we talked about this with Harvey, which is the storm surge was a foot higher in Harvey and Houston than it would have been because of rising sea levels. And warmer temperatures mean that storms will dump more rain on places. This look, is just, these are scientific look, facts. Look, you don't have to listen to us. There's this uh, person on Twitter uh, named Donald Trump who has been endlessly fascinated by the severity of these storms, who cannot get enough of just how unprecedented the storms have been. Uh, it's It's obviously, you know, he's an addled old racist, so he doesn't really make the connection or I thought he can't. was an independent dealmaker. You know what? We're we'll going to get, get to that. You know what? You know I what, just John? want to make sure. I'm I just gonna, want to introduce it early. I'm going to have a controversial position during <coughs> oh, this section. Yes. Controversial position. You know, Probably not. This is one, like, this is also another unique challenge with Donald Trump because when you're tweeting something crazy every day, when you're, like, kicking around NATO or, you know, like, Rosie O'Donnell, whoever it might be, is <laughs> all these things happen under the radar, off the radar. What's the metaphor I'm looking for here? I don't under know. The radar. Well, I guess you can go under the radar, but I guess suppose you could also be off the radar. Which mm. is when you're either flying low or maybe you're just not in the range of the kind of the scope there. I think we're technically off here. Like all these things are happening at EPA. Enforcement is lagging, or if not stopping, and it's exacerbating this problem. I mean, yeah. And there's no way to get it covered because, like we were talking about earlier, two weeks without a mention on a Sunday show. Because when one side has a position where they dig in and you don't move, the press moves on because it gets boring. One of the things that sort of protects us a little bit is the fact that Donald Trump is so incompetent because the place where he's been most effective at undermining environmental rules has been at the administrative level in these lower level positions that just don't get covered, you know, the assistant secretaries and all the rest. But because they've been so disorganized and bumbling, they haven't actually been able to do as much damage as they otherwise could have, even though pulling out of Paris plus all the rule writing that they're doing at EPA and through the administration has been devastating. Yeah. What's truly scary about this is for a long time it's, you know, oh, liberals are predicting climate change and conservatives saying it's never going to happen. Well, it's here now and it's here in a big way. And with storm surges and these hurricanes destroying parts of Houston, parts of Texas, putting Miami underwater, putting, you know, Naples is covered. And, I mean, this is we now have to do something about this because it's here. And so now efforts are basically not just focused on mitigation, but adaptation. Like you got to build seawalls and we've got to have stronger buildings and flood protection, all this kind of shit. And Mm -hmm. that is a huge infrastructure project on its own. Yes. And it's not going to get done if we can't focus on. Well, one of the things the Trump administration rolled back was rules that accounted for climate change in the building of, right. of buildings and infrastructure <laughs> in areas prone to flooding. Mind-boggling. Yeah. And these think, are all expensive 
items that are fraught politically that involve a lot of mindshare. I mean, the thing that worries me is like having gone through some natural disasters, you know, at the NSC and in the administration, like there is only so many minutes of the day that your Homeland Security Advisor or that your uh, your FEMA director can spend like managing each individual crisis. And Harvey is just beginning. Irma's not even over yet. God knows what could come next. I mean, it's going to take a lot of time and effort for them to fix this and a lot of money. I thought perhaps the best encapsulation of conservatism in 2017 was Rush Limbaugh what a fucking idiot. saying that Irma was liberal media hype and then promptly evacuating <laughs> his Palm Beach home. Yes. You know, Alex Jones has sort of dimmed his terribleness star, uh, but it's good to have him back in, in our crosshairs because the guy is just a clown. What did Rush Limbaugh sound like broadcasting from a well, this from is an a, undisclosed location? I don't know. Well, let's see what liberal. What would liberal Rush Limbaugh have to say about this? Conservative traitors flooding Miami. They've set their terrorist climate sites on Miami and Tampa and St. Petersburg and Tallahassee. I'm recording this from deep within NORAD, the only place now safe from the climate disaster. Very Conservative good. traitors. <laughs> sacrificing your beaches at the almighty altar of the Koch brothers. <laughs> the Koch brothers, conservative traitors. <laughs> Friends. Oh, God. <laughs> so stupid. At the end there, that was him running away. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Have to... In the water. <laughs> water is coming. Gurgling. <laughs> I'm so upset by these changing climates that I must attach yet another fentanyl patch. <laughs> To my haunches. I was, I was waiting for that. I was going to let you keep going until you talked about the fentanyl. The only pack. thing changing faster than the rising sea levels is the level of opiate coursing through my bloodstream. <laughs> friends. That's, that's, friends. A, that's Aaron Ryan laughing in the background. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. I just got off the All rails right. so I think, fast. I think, we, I think we covered that. I wonder if so Hillary will like it when you do that later. Yeah. Um, okay. Donald Trump has been relatively uh, quiet during this latest storm. Um, that is because he is basking in the glow of his press coverage. There's a lot of TV of, to watch, As too, of late. You know. I want to talk about Trump, the independent dealmaker. Slew of headlines over the weekend. Here's Peter Baker of the New York Times. Quote, in some ways, Trump is the first independent to serve as president in modern times. Here's Robert Costa of the Washington Post. Quote, in spirit, Trump isn't a Democrat or Republican. He's a freewheeling transactional politician who looks for wins. The Associated Press, quote, Trump the Independent. Now, in fairness to Peter, he said that he didn't, in, he didn't intend independent to mean moderate or centrist, just that Trump isn't beholden to the Republican Party. John, you have a what you've described and previewed for us is a controversial position. Well, you've, you've, no, oh, I don't know that that's, I, I, I mitigated it, didn't No, I? you didn't, not yet. So here's, here's what I think. I, you can tell me if this is controversial. I don't okay. want to, I don't want to hype it. It's here, hyped, here, it's hyped. <laughs> Donald Trump ran as a Republican, but in many ways he did run an independent campaign. The issues that were central to his campaign, immigration restrictions and anti-trade and just general nationalism would have worked also as an independent bid. And it was running against conservative and Republican dogma. I mean, he stood on that stage and says, just said George Bush lied us into war. You know, he attacked a lot of precepts of the Republican Party, and that helped him win a lot of people who were dissatisfied with the Republican Party. And that could have been a platform he used if he had run as an independent. That being said, once once he was inside of the Republican Party as the nominee, he was captured because 
His tax plan was deeply conservative, something Paul Ryan could get behind. Uh, <clears throat> the health care bill he's signed on for is something that obviously Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell could get behind. So he did run as an independent, and in many ways he is an independent. But the policy apparatus he built around himself by inertia, by who Reince Priebus put him with, by a lot of different forces, ended up making him govern more like a traditional Republican. And it's actually been something we've talked about a lot, that the great risk of Donald Trump was not that he'd come in, basically, you know, that we'd have Trump's temperament and, and Ted Cruz's agenda. The f more frightening possibility was that he'd really adhere to what Steve Bannon wants, which is a populist agenda that includes big infrastructure proposals and anti-trade and anti-immigration. And, and he really hasn't done that. So I was more sympathetic to this version because only because the first eight months of this administration, he is so thoroughly governed like a, you know, traditional Republican plus some race, extra verbalized racism and verbalized anti-immigration policy and anti-Muslim policy that the fact that he could sit down and make this deal with, with Schumer did feel so strange and such a departure. So I guess my view of the articles is not that they're wrong, it's that they're completely overstated. Like making one non-ideological deal to extend the debt limit by three months does not make him the independent he could have been. Right. That's right. all. So I'm going to disagree with you that was in any way controversial. Ooh. You don't, you don't, Tommy. You, you Aaron, don't, what do you think? <laughs> no, I think just, this is instructive yeah, in that it's like a sea change in how Trump is covered versus every other president. Yeah. Every other president is lashed to their previous positions and gets the crap beaten out of them if they change or diverge in any way. Donald Trump is constantly handed a blank slate. Axios the other day reported that he has a chance for a reset on race because he was meeting Wait, with... Wait, what? <laughs> no. Yes. What? You didn't read this? It was... What are you talking about? Dude. I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> President Trump's botched Charlottesville response was the low point of his presidency for some key aides. Now he has a chance for a reset at the same time he's reveling in the adulation for a surprise deal with Democrats. Wait, I want to see Lovett's face. He doesn't know me, why. Let me he tell you why. why. Oh my God. The reason was that he was meeting with Tim Scott. <laughs> <laughs> He was a meet, he has a meeting Dude, with a black Republican got... senator on his schedule, thus the racial reset. Who wrote that? Name them. I don't know. Axios. It would be Mike Allen or Jim Vandehei. Come on, Mike. I don't know. Better, right, than, so... that. <laughs> Better than that, Mike. So I mean, I think this is again like a reset on fucking race because you're meeting with Tim Scott. Right. A, Tommy, do you have the line there where um, he compares it to a movie character? It was I like do not. I it do was not. something like it's a classic storyline. <laughs> The bad, evil guy realizes everyone hates him, and so he decides to turn things around by reconciling. I just right, hope and, this is not the <clears throat> false victory. I hope this what's going on right now is false defeat. Yeah. So I hope, I mean, we're, I hope we're not at the turn into three. I'm talking about classic structure <laughs> based on the dumb book everybody reads when they move to L.A. Right. Save the cats. Great. <laughs> Works for really us. helped me. Uh, <laughs> really helped me succeed. How you guys, <laughs> how's that screenplay coming along? Guys? You, uh, <laughs> got, got, a got a protagonist. Got some nice characters. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are we talking about? Oh, we're talking oh. about Trump's pivot on but, race. But in some ways, this is back to how yeah, Trump was covered point. in the campaign. Because everyone thought that there was this chance deep inside of him. There was this liberal Manhattan Republican who was moderate on a whole bunch of issues. And like that is belied by the fact that his entire election was appealing to the hardest hard right audience he could possibly find. Yeah. So, and here we are. But no. just because he hates Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan doesn't mean that like – this is some new day. So I agree with Lovett that there was a chance during the campaign that Trump could have upset the party and the party structure by going far to the right on the Republican Party's most far right positions on immigration and trade, terrorism, and then 
yeah, and then on trade and stuff like that, and then tacked more towards Democrats on issues like he promised to protect Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. He at one point talked about raising taxes on hedge fund people, mm-hmm. and he talked about trade trade protectionism that's wherever that falls. Yeah. yeah. So if he and that's where and infrastructure and this is where Bannon wanted him to go. Bannon wanted <laughs> yeah. him to be this big nationalist, this you know ethno nationalist where we kick out immigrants. And then we, you know, do all this building and infrastructure and bullshit. And tax none of that. But the problem is absolutely none of that has happened since he started governing. And the only thing, the only time he has broken from the Republican Party while governing, the only time is when he made a deal to push a vote on the debt ceiling from three months, from 18 <laughs> months to three months. He literally shortened the timeline for a vote, and those are the articles we got. There's nothing liberal up. about that either. It's just a stupid deal. The debt ceiling is incredibly stupid. It's non-ideologically stupid. Right. I think one, one, one thing that's instructive about how all this went down is there was, a, I think, a report in Politico about the conversation between Mulvaney and Trump on cutting entitlements. And Trump's like, I said I wouldn't cut Social Security and, and Medicare and all the rest. He goes, and, and Mulvaney's like, well, what about disability? It's like welfare. You know, uh, Mulvaney leaving out the fact that it's Social Security, disability mm-hmm. insurance. And Trump's like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And so a lot of this is because of the people around Trump. You know, Bannon's not wrong about that. Right. That that a lot of this is, is because Donald Trump built a Republican apparatus. Well, mm-hmm. this gets to my other point, which is like, so what forms Trump's views? What is his ideology? He is a dotty old racist Fox News viewer and that's how he gets his information and news. And so he either gets it from the people he surrounds himself with in his administration or he gets it from Fox and Friends. So, and thus, that's not, how his views come to not, I have a question about this. Nancy. I have a question about this. So all these stories, the AP story, the Post story, the Times story, the Axios story, whatever's happened on cable news as a result of that, those stories setting the narrative, Trump sees that and he really likes it. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's good for the country that Donald Trump sees on television that him it's, it's good for the country that he's now watching Morning Joe instead of Fox and Friends that's yes. a terrifying it's, thing but to it, say but like but I, look, but, but you're probably look, you know we're on the strong we're we are through the looking glass it's, this is the world it's all relative it's right all I, relative. look I don't not, I didn't yeah. I didn't decide to move America to fucking Saturn I tried to stop it we all did that's the point of this book we've read <laughs> what happened by Hillary Clinton available now and uh, <laughs> but because we're on Saturn where the rules are different and gravity is strange and the earth and there's no solid ground beneath us and there are rings instead of moons i'm asking the question should we be glad that these reporters are writing these pieces and if maybe either subconsciously or consciously saying let's try to use the press to to use fucking pavlovian response to get the to get the deranged poodle in the oval office to kind of whatever you know sit and stop shitting in the fucking house like isn't that a good thing yeah i'm with you all i'm saying is we we focus a lot of metaphors there a lot they're good press focuses too much on characters in a drama and not enough on like. Or I was like when you say that characters in a drama. In a drama, <laughs> um, and not enough on like the larger forces here. So, in three months, we're going to have a debate and about the debt ceiling, about the funding the government, dreamers, infrastructure, tax reform, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And Trump's going to have to make or not make some actual deals with con- with policy consequences, and then all of this stuff is going to go to shit because if he makes some deal to legalize young undocumented americans then great for chuck and nancy great for democrats great for america and he's going to get continue to get that great coverage on morning joe and stuff like that but his pals at fox and friends and on the right 
they're not going to be so happy. Like, I don't know happy, that that's true. They're happy know, right now you. because it's a deal with no consequences. I, I, it's him as a dealmaker, but they're, they, they can look. Uh, uh, Steve Bannon says it's going to start a civil war if he legalizes. That's uh, next year. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we got December problems first, but no, but but uh, you know, a little bit of like Paul Ryan kind of being dragged into a deal that legalizes the DACA recipients is not the worst outcome for him either, right? They want this to go, you know. Th- He's voted against it in the past, but it's not like it's not a core belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a base play. But if Trump comes along with a deal with Democrats and they and and they can claim some kind of victory, I, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But I, I'm not so sure that Fox and that Fox News won't go along on the little on the journey we're about to go on. That's what I I, I th- think that Fox is like pathetic supplication to Trump is financial and that they will kind of follow his lead. Like, look, look at the Lou Dobbs segment, just shredding right, Paul Ryan. Right. He, that guy was a Fox business reporter, like throwing all principle out you the know window. What? I just you hope know, that you, there aren't a lot of businesses watching Fox business because I think they're getting, I don't know. I'm just worried about their, I'm worried about their employees. Their investment advice. <laughs> yeah. You know, when Bannon talks about a civil war, the supplicants on Fox, maybe, maybe the people who, you know, are on Fox and friends don't really have much intelligence at all. Sean Hannity is going to be there with him till the end. Yeah. Dub. Sean Hannity is going to be Breitbart, buried in Trump's coffin. Breitbart will start a war against that administration. Totally. Against they're, the cr- they're a bunch of lunatics. They will. Yep. And right now, everyone's holding their fire because it's just a deal about a fucking vote. So it's yeah. all too early. Okay. When we come back, we'll be talking about Steve Bannon on 60 Minutes. Great job. With Aaron Ryan. <laughs> As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. And we're back. And we're back. And mm. joining us, 
is Aaron Ryan. Hi. Hello. How's it going? It's good. I, I was so surprised that you all three were here in New York. I thought I was going to come in and there's going to be this kind of bone uh, situation. No. Oh, no. We travel no. in a pack. Wow. Of course. That's we're great. all here. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have like matching pajamas that you wear when you go to bed in hotels on the road? Do they have your first initial they, like monogram on it? They won't do it. it. Who told you that? Um, <laughs> they said no. Hey, Lisa, take a note next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we want to talk about Steve Bannon on 60 Minutes. Did you sit through the entire interview? No, I saw bits and pieces, and I saw a gif of the best moment of the video, which is mm. where a part of his face moved independently of the rest <laughs> of his face. Uh, but I mostly just kind of read recaps of it. Yeah, it was. Um, he made a few different headlines. Let's start with, he declared war on the Republican establishment and accused Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell of trying to nullify the 2016 election because they don't want Trump's populist economic nationalist agenda to be implemented. Cool. Seems hmm. fair. Yeah, I didn't disagree with that. Right? Yeah, I don't think that's wrong. <laughs> he also said something cool. interesting, which is on the first. <laughs> he said on the first day he ratted out Mitch McConnell. On the first day, Mitch McConnell told him, "Enough with the drain the swamp stuff. I can't hire any good lobbyists." Basically, yeah. yeah. Man, you know, Mitch McConnell is just exactly root- who we think he is. It was weird to <laughs> it was weird to root for Steve Bannon, but in that moment, I sort of rooted. It's for like Steve Alien Bannon. versus Predator. Can, can we pause on this for a second, though? Sure. Because he is right that the swamp is a business model, and that it's yeah. going to take generations to drain or whatever the hell they really want to do. But Steve Bannon is profiting off it as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. His entire entity that he runs, Breitbart, is funded by a billionaire named Robert Mercer, who is a right-wing lunatic who funds all these other things. Like, Steve lives in a house that houses Breitbart News. He is as much a swamp creature as anyone else. He just doesn't play one on TV. Mm-hmm. Then why is he so handsome? Because <laughs> he wears what kind of swamp creature looks he wears, like that? Because he perfected the polo under a black shirt what? under a black blazer just, look. This just, is, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's just talk about that for one second. <laughs> so he wears I, I was I really was flummoxed by it. So he wears a button down shirt under a button down shirt under a blade under a jacket. All black. All black. So I don't mind the all black. You know, Johnny Cash may is you know, it's it's as if Johnny Cash had a stroke. Like halfway getting dressed. Well, you know what's interesting is is Steve <laughs> and put Bannon. put on an extra shirt by mistake. Steve Bannon is actually really skinny, and it's uh, it's all <laughs> shirt weight that he just w- like layers over and over. So it takes him about forty five minutes every day to like peel off every single layer of it feels shirt. Like, is he cold? Is he kind of got? Does he always get chilly? But then it's like, why not wear a sweater over it? I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like the cautionary tale of the of the middle aged divorced man. You know, okay. like how does this happen? I don't get it, and it what does happened? feel like his. What, even ha- his, Steve Bannon, what, what happened? happened when you got dressed? It feels a little bit like just another fuck you from Steve Bannon. Like he's like fuck them. I'm going to be dressed like a crazy person. Yeah, I think that's true, and I also think, but I will say that Steve Bannon's a little bit of a trailblazer in that I, it feels so nice to be talking about clothes that a man is wearing mm. instead of clothes that a woman is wearing. So, like, thank you, let's, Steve Bannon, yeah. the feminist. Let's go after Steve Bannon's appearance a little bit here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you know, he's, I, I'm feeling like very feminist right now. We can make fun of men too. I saw I that know. you tweeted he should drink more water. That's what the, the... yes. That's every time I see him, I'm like, oh my god, how much water have I drank today? And I go drink some water. <laughs> Megan Amram tweeted that he puts lipstick on his eyeballs. <laughs> Can I say, working in the campaign and working in the White House is like the worst thing you could possibly do for your health. We all watched Barack Obama age two decades in eight years, but I've never seen someone look worse for the wear than Steve Bannon. Yeah. Okay, you, I genuinely, I'm not concerned about him, but like his you know, health you, doesn't look good. What mm. do we think about him out there in general? Like, is he someone who is successfully spinning a seven-month stint in the White House where he got fired as a success? Are we not really buying it? <laughs> 
I think you can only have so many demonstrable apparent failures in a row before it stops looking like you're playing some kind of master chess game and it starts looking like you're just pretending like you didn't lose. Right. Um, and, and like he... I think he's he's kind of running out of time. I think most people haven't been... I, I think it'd be fair to not be generous and assume that he he's just a loser. Um, but, you know, it is possible that he's got some other tricks up his sleeve. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I sort of go back and forth here. You know, he is in many ways like a classic, sophisticated crank, right? He has a whole bunch of arguments. He had a real career before, but then you listen to what he says and it's like, populism will win the day. The question is if it's left wing or right wing and right. all the rest. And it's like... Okay, there's some truth to that. It was with all kind of crank nonsense. There's like a kernel of truth in there. and But he's a sophisticated crank elevated because he helped elect a president. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he did do that. And yeah. and what he said was, you know, his case for why Trump could win was correct. I mean, he was right. But like he is right that the central problem with the Trump administration, which is what we were just talking about, is that they are – he didn't staff the administration with a bunch of Steve Bannons. He staffed it with some Steve Bannons and then some traditional Republicans and then like Wall Street bankers. Right. And so Bannon's dream on the populist economic side of like infrastructure and draining the swamp and tax reform and all this bullshit isn't getting realized because Gary Cohn and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are there. Right. That, that's Mul- correct. Mulvaney, right? I think Mulvaney, Mulvaney. Mulvaney has played a big role in all this because – Everything that they've, you know, he's basically been a Paul Ryan acolyte inside of the administration and it's made a difference. I think he's a Jim Comey. Like, he, you're right that he sounds sophisticated. He quotes President Polk and cites history, right? But, like, he's a Jim Comey letter away from writing, leading the most racist losing campaign in modern history true. than the most racist winning campaign That's in modern true. history. That's and, like, true. I think we can't remember that. Well, one of the things Hillary that was Clinton just, would agree with that. Yes, in, she would. In what happened. <laughs> she would. Now. One thing that is remarkable to me, though, is, like, Again, like the the sort of totally rejiggering of how the press covers these things, like the fact that he still gets away with calling, bragging about sexual assault, just that's oh, locker room talk. There's like no follow up on that. That's mm-hmm. locker room talk. You know, just it's just the guy is disgusting. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, how about how about the Chris Christie stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah. he was like, no, the Access Hollywood tape that was a real test. If you got on the plane afterwards, you were part of the team. If not, we don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah, I mean, well. You know, th- True and awful, <laughs> right? It seems like that was true. Terrific. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, it's awful, but it's also like another irritating thing about this whole thing is is how like, I don't know, it's like there's a whole crew of people in power right now who seem like they're trying to play guys who are bad guys on TV. Like uh. they're, they're like... Pl- they're play acting a version of what they think evil is based on a movie they saw in the 80s. Yes. And it like doesn't, it's it's really odd because it's like, it's really disingenuous. It feels really fake. Have you ever talked to somebody who was like acting or like, yeah. it feels like you're in a, you're in a cultural reenactment of like, <laughs> reve- like the bad guys from Revenge of the Nerds. I'm a street fighter. Yeah. Are you? Oh, I thought, yeah. How many fights have you been in lately? Yeah, he was right. so excited to call himself a street fighter. I'm yeah. a street fighter. You're, you're a guy that got some Seinfeld money. <laughs> Calm yeah. the fuck down. Who the Mercer's like because you're a nut. And to your Christie point, they're like, that guy was dead to us. He was off the plane. He was never given an important job. Chris Christie now leading our opioid task force, by the way. Like, yeah. We handed him that piece of shit. No, I love when he rails against elites and he's like, oh, limousine liberals and blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, buddy, you were fucking on Wall Street in Hollywood. That was your career. Like right. it yeah. was, like, you're also, as elitist as they come. Also, Gorka, Bannon, they all do this Obi Wan thing where they're like, "Strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine." It's like you run a fucking blog for racists. <laughs> <laughs> it's a racist scene. <laughs> but 
as Tommy mentioned, the alliance with Mercer makes him at least somewhat influential and powerful. It's capitalized. And what came out of that interview that That's I think right. is most consequential is that Mercer and Bannon are planning primary challenges to Republicans like Dean Heller, Jeff Flake, possibly Bob Corker. Dirty possibly Dean Heller. Ro- Dirty Dean. Possibly Roger Wicker of Mississippi. <laughs> Currently, they're trying to take down Luther Strange, who I didn't even know liberal, was, I didn't even know was a senator. Winger. He's like a million feet tall, and his name is Luther Strange. Like, yeah. I didn't believe that was a real name of a real senator. I didn't either. He's, he like came directly from Hogwarts. He took time off from his teaching position there to like be in the Senate, and now he's getting primary. Oh, was he the defense against the dark arts yeah, guy? Yeah, again, uh, he's he having a really it. bad year. Eighth book. Yeah, poor Roger Wicker is like, how did I get on this list? Like, what I was did trying I do? to think of something like Tea Party Puff. Huffing party. <laughs> so I don't have it. So I'm struggling with the primary. Racist puff. <laughs> I'm struggling with the primary challenges because in the pre-Trump world, I would say, excellent. A bunch of moderate or conservative the Republicans same journey. are being taken down by a bunch of right-wing freaks. That's good for Democrats. We're going to win. In this world, I don't know. I don't know if like – Roy Moore is the stronger candidate against a Democrat than Luther Strange, whoever he may be. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if like Dean Heller's challenger is stronger than Dean Heller against whoever we pay put up, may put up, because the argument they're going to use against these Republicans they're trying to knock off is they're part of the establishment, they're part of the swamp, they're in, they're part of the special interests, and you should knock them off for a change. I think that's assuming that the level of energy that existed on Election Day 2016 is going to be present in 2018. That's a good point. And among the exact same people. So like that's that's a pretty big gamble, gamble to assume that like the Trumpian like rally attendee MAGA hat wearing set is going to be as fired up and mad. And I don't think that's going to be the case. Mm-hmm. I mean and and cuz whatever polls screw up all the time, but if you take a look at like what people what media people are consuming now, <laughs> what what political um, publications, what broadcast people are watching like msnbc is killing it because people are mad and fired up on the left mm. like just as how when obama was first in office fox news was killing mm-hmm. it like it's a midterm election and that's a huge gamble i just can't see that playing out yep yeah that's right i, I had the same journey which is like initially i'm like great spend money bleed these guys dry but I, i'm just i have this fear inside me that these more you know you see just somewhat moderate individuals even when they're cowards like dean heller seeing them go down like a jeff flake going down like i don't know that that's a good thing for the institution i do think it's back to the moderating of trump question like is he going to go all in with the breitbart crowd and like primary people like he's been doing in nevada or is he going to get with the program and like support the caucus. I, we just don't know yet. I think the Breitbart crowd plays in extremely red districts, though. And if Trump likes national headlines that are fawning, he can't align with that crowd because he's found throughout the first months yeah. of his presidency that every time he's aligned with them, the the papers, the TV shows, the talk shows have hated him. And he liked the he liked the Schumer bump. He liked getting good press coverage. So like he's. That was gross. Schumer bump. Uh, no, but he, but he, Schumer has a Schumer bump from the Schumer bump. Yeah, right, oh right. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, oh, I was in my head. <laughs> Nobody likes that. That stays in, that stay- That's staying in. I saw your face. It's staying the fuck in. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he likes he likes good coverage. And he, I think that's the title. Yeah, he's the Schumer bump. I'm so sorry, guys. But but he'll do what he he'll do what he needs to do to impress the audience that he's in front of at the exact mm-hmm. moment. And if he can't impress the nation with aligning himself with Breitbart, he's not going to con- continue to do uh, it. Yeah, I mean, True. look, I think the what we've seen the past you know eight months is that he'll do both, right? He'll bounce around. You know, I think I think you're right. He'll 
pivot one way. He'll try to help these people, but he won't be disciplined enough to follow through. I mean, he's already threatened some of these people with primaries. He basically threatened Dean Heller in front of him. Mm -hmm. But then following through means making people mad to their faces, which is something he's never been comfortable doing, which is why the I'm fired guy can't fire someone. He can't look Gary Cohn in the eye. Like, that's his discipline. (laughs) I I feel like there's – I remember – I feel a little bit about, like, how we're worried about what's going to come out of these primaries the way we did early in the Republican primary where I remember us talking about this a lot, that it was – you know, who do we want to face Hillary in the yeah. primary? And there was Jeb and Marco and Cruz and some other kind of homogenous white faces I've mostly forgotten. <laughs> and then there was and Ben Trump Carson. And Ben Carson. And then I and I remember us talking about this that like, you know, who do we want to come out of the process? And Trump was the wild card. We we there was this back and there was a feeling like, oh, it would be great if Trump got that. He'll implode. But maybe he won't. We're not sure. We don't really know. But we in our minds were like, but Rubio's harder than Jeb. Right. And Jeb is harder than Cruz. Like, that was an easy math to do. So it's a little bit like kind of n- different math. Like, we don't really yeah. know what comes out of it. But I yep. do think we're maybe a little bit traumatized. And we're not going to make the exact same mistakes in every single no, election. And it, it, it still could be another year of the Sharon Angle year, the Todd Aiken legitimate rape guy, the Christine, whoever, who was the witch or not the witch. Remember the yeah. yeah. What a year. Connecticut. What a year. By the way, and they all lost. Rape. And they put up those they Banner put up those year. crazy candidates and they all lost. And Aiken, the Democrats won those races. Aiken lost because of tr- of talking about whatever he I can't even remember. What was it called? Legitimate rape. Yeah. And then yeah. Donald Trump brags about legitimate sexual assault and mm. he doesn't pay a price. He's on the way to the White House. Okay. This brings us to Hillary Clinton and her book, What Happened, which we will be interviewing her about in a couple hours. Aaron, you read the book. I sure did. And you wrote a review already. I did write a review already. Somehow, I was able to. That's amazing, because the three of us basically just Honestly, like, finished the book late last night. The three night. of us getting through a book over the weekend, we're like, this tweet is so long. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe how long it's taking me to read this tweet by Hillary Clinton. I never knew tweets could be this long. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> What'd you think? I thought, you know, I, I was of a few minds of it on it. First of all, it, it wasn't a bad book. It's yeah. not no. bad. No. It's like, it's there are good. parts of it that are like really funny um, in a way that's kind of deadpan and like oh that's that's actually really funny when she was like writing about her staffers fighting over hot sauce brands mm-hmm. and like when she was kind of deadpanning how she goes through a day it was like actually funny yeah. and, and when she was talking about the inaugural and she's like I wish I was anywhere but here Bali? Bali sounds good Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like deadpan also I liked how she kind of ping pongs between being like an aggressively basic suburban woman and like <laughs> the most one of the most intelligent and powerful women like lover or hater like who's ever like lived in the modern era. So it's like, you know, she would be like, I love NCIS Los Angeles. It's the strongest of the franchise, which was a horrifying line. Um, and then, uh, and then she'll, and then she'll talk about how she's got a plan for meeting resistance with steel, like with steely resolve. And it's like, Oh my God, this woman is scary, but also like super nice. And I kind of want to hug her, but she's also very, so there's that the book is actually a good book, mm-hmm. but I think reading it, I was put into a mind space where I was like, I don't want to hear this from you right now. And like, not that I'll never want to hear it from you, but I understand why people are like kind of resistant to it. And I was thinking this morning that it sort of reminds me of like, if you had a dog that got hit by a car and the person who hit your dog came over to your house and explained like, look, there was a bee in my car. I'm super allergic to bees and I had to hit the bee. Otherwise, if it would have stung me, I would have died and it totally wasn't my fault. Or I got rear-ended and that's why my car hit your dog. 
I don't care. Like my dog is still dead. I don't want to look at you right now. <laughs> like I don't care if it wasn't your fault. I don't care if you I don't care if like that you have a perfectly good excuse like my dog is still dead. And I know that like I don't think that it's even rational to be that angry or like upset with her. But the fact that, you know, this is her owning up to the mistakes that led to where we are right now is kind of I don't really want to be put back in that headspace yeah. just yet. Um but I'm glad I'm glad I read it. That being said, I think it's a book that people should read. Yeah, I mean, the um, I've I've had a similar reaction. I, I especially when she gets to the the litigation of why, mm-hmm. and she writes this case, and it's like, oh right, mm-hmm. you're you're. It reminded me of when she was in the Benghazi hearing, and she just held her own for eleven hours, which is just you know I worked for her, and like that's the Hillary Clinton you love working for because yeah. first of all, she comes like staff can make a mistake she can make wrong choices about the message or all the rest but you know that she's going to show up brilliant and prepared like we've been preparing for this interview for the past couple of days and we're all going in under the assumption that she will be fully and totally prepared for questions and for the direction we're going to take it and that's part of who she is and so you read this litigation of why and 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 the different reasons and the different causes and her way of breaking them down. And she's one of the smartest people around. And the thing I was thinking about, too, in reading the book is all of those qualities became background radiation. The fact that she is incredibly tough, the fact that she is a brilliant person became kind of the for granted part of the election and everything was focused on negatives. And and in that, she is right. So I, I found myself having the same feeling as you. Like, I, I was telling the, these guys last night, like, I pinballed back and forth. Like, yeah. reading this and being, like, so outraged on her behalf and so sympathetic. And then also having that same feeling that you had, which is, I don't know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. It's a bit dramatic to go through it again. Because she does do such a good job of taking you through the whole experience in a very candid way. It's a very candid book. Like, mm-hmm. and we're talking about, like, we've all read a lot of politicians' books, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. And some of them are like, I'm running for office and here's my blah, blah, blah that my speechwriter and my communications person put on paper, you know? And then there's more honest books. And this is one of the more candid politician books, mm-hmm. which is good. I would also tell people, like, you should read the whole thing. And then if you have criticism, like, offer all the criticism you want but the excerpts that have leaked out and they have leaked out they haven't been put out by the by the clinton people don't really paint and an accurate picture of what the the, whole the the excerpts give you a unique window into her frustration because she couldn't have more fully owned this loss in the book but the fact that she also talks about comey and how that influenced the election the fact she talks about russia like there will be people that will pluck that out and say she's making excuses it's just like hopefully well, we all could be a little more adult about it and be like, yes, they were factors that contributed to this broader event, even if she didn't run a. Yeah, race. I don't think people are really capable of being adults when it comes to Hillary Clinton, though. Like people Fair. go <laughs> insane one way or the other, like whether or not they are crazy about her and love her, or whether they just are just hate her. I'm sorry, Aaron. Just pause for a second. I just want to make sure we have the Verit authentication code <laughs> on that point. Oh, guys, did you see that he's like a house DJ? He had he like produced a bunch of. Oh my god, we're not talking about it. Okay, we're not talking about it. Anyway, uh, no, I, just... I think people people are like because. It, because like John what you said um, that it some people experience the election as like a trauma and revisiting it causes like this extreme reaction one way or the other and it's yeah. it's really hard to go back there and, and there's something we want to ask her because the Bernie Hillary wound that opened in the primary that everyone thought would heal for the general did not heal mm-hmm. and it is not healed today and it is certainly 
a fair reading, I think, of the Twitter reaction and everything else that it this is exacerbating the problem. I think she has every right to tell her story and explain where she's coming from. But like, okay, now as a party, how do we fix this? Because we still have this monster in the White House. Our entire message is still just attacking him. Like, what are we? What do we stand for? And like, how do we fix yeah. this? Because right. And this is an existential problem. And we have all experienced how difficult it is talking about that. Like, you uh, send out an our errant, mentions are dead. You already. send out an errant tweet and about the 2016 election, and you are batting down the hatches. D- yeah. yeah. <laughs> poor, poor Dylan. <laughs> you Dylan Matthews at Vox tweeted <laughs> over the weekend. Does anyone know what she was trying to accomplish with this book? Now you can take the tone of that in a bunch of different ways. Dylan later said he was actually just wondering, like, what's she trying to do? Yeah. Well, He's still replying to his mention. I was glad that he said, I was glad he was like, guys, I'm not going to apologize for asking what a politician's motivations are. But but it speaks to the kind of sensitivity that people have because of all these unfair dynamics that played out in the election. We're all kind of like a a dog that needs to be reassimilated to other dogs. We're all partially honest in the same way the book is like pretty honest, but not 100% candid, right? Well, and it's also, it's, she lost an election to Trump, right, which is what makes this whole thing different. And I was on John Kerry's campaign. I remember the days and weeks and months after that campaign. John Kerry was destroyed. There were Newsweek books about it. and I, I mean, it was, it was bad, but it wasn't anything like this. And I we sort of saw it coming, though, if she was going to lose. Like, I remember visiting headquarters in Brooklyn to say hi to our old friends who were there. And I was talking to Jen Paul Mary and talking to Christina Shockey. And I was like... You know, this is right after she won the primary. And I'm like, this is going to be so much pressure for you guys because in addition to all the other pressure you get on a presidential campaign, it's Trump. And if you don't win, if you don't beat Trump, it's going to be that much, like, that's so scary. And they're like, thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> but they hadn't really, it hadn't really hit them yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it ultimately hit them, but it hadn't hit them at that point. Mm-hmm. And it just, it makes it a different context because it's, he's so, he was so scary. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think additionally, you know, the, the book's title is What Happened, but Hillary kind of at one point says, like, I don't know why I'm the one that gets treated like this. I'm, I'm at a loss. Tell me what you think. Like, I'm at a loss. And it seems like a lot of the ends, loose ends are still loose. Like, yeah. Yeah. she lays out, why she did what she did and takes ownership for the things that went wrong, but we're missing the exact thing that went wrong. You know what I mean? There's yeah. like step one, two, question mark, profit. Like we were, in, there's like a whole bunch of question marks well, still left in there. Right. I, I think that the parts she takes responsibility for are the parts least elucidated mm-hmm. in the book, right? And the parts that were the outside factors, which she very effectively makes the case mattered most, are laid out and, and fully and bare. And I think it's quite reasonable that this book, an attempt for her to explain from her perspective what she thinks went wrong, needs help on the parts that are specific about the failures of the campaign, specific about her failures in the campaign. So, yeah. you know. So, almost know. because every time she takes responsibility for one of those failures, there also happens to be some mitigating outside factor that has also caused that problem. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, right. It's, all, it's just like you can see the, the whole book is a back and forth. I was at fault. I did this wrong. I did this wrong. But this also happened. And it's true. And, and, you know, she says this in the book, which I think is quite way reasonable. Like, you know, these things happened and they're not excuses, but they happened and we need to understand why they happened. And she's right about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think the, the excerpts that have been pulled out have kind of highlighted that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, I, I, she's not wrong that we need to talk about that. Yeah, I also thought as I was reading it that I was like, oh, I'm glad that this is all written down in one place because I think five years from now, ten, 10 years from now, if anybody wants a snapshot into like this weird time in history, like this will be a really useful volume for one side of what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I, like I, I was thinking like future college kids will probably get assigned it and like grumble about it, but then actually secretly enjoy reading it because it's like kind of a fun book. Yeah, it's the. It, the book is a metaphor. It The book is being treated like and represents the way Hillary Clinton has been treated in the public eye this whole time, which is incredibly high level of scrutiny, much of it taken the wrong way, much of it taken fairly, flawed, but mostly honest and trying to understand something. But the flaws become exacerbated and the flaws make the honest part harder to talk about. Sounds like we got a book jacket blurb. We'll <laughs> 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 oh. have to add like an accordion inner jacket. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When we come back, we will talk with DeRay McKesson. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. And we are joined by the host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, how's it going? It's good. It's good. How are you guys doing? You guys have a big interview coming up. We have a big interview. We do. We do, do. You, what, do you have anything uh, you want to ask Hillary or you want us to ask Hillary? Uh, I'm always interested in her about race. So anything okay. that you ask her about race and justice, you know, she had a lot of stuff in her policy platform that never made a lot of day. Like you didn't hear about it. So I'd be interested hear about that and then what does she think is going to happen moving forward like she's been an insider for so long and you know she was first lady and secretary of state like what's her thought about how we organize to respond to this administration i'm I'm interested in those things that's good yeah we we asked people on twitter and facebook for questions and i think the most common one we got was what's going to happen moving forward ask don't don't try to relitigate too much of the past which i think is Probably wise. Which I probably want you to. <laughs> it's just going to ignore. Um, so, Dre, you were in Houston this weekend, I believe. What were you, uh, what were you doing there? How's everyone doing? I volunteered. Um, Houston, you know, it's a city rebuilding. I volunteered at a, the Harvey Relief Hub, which is like this incredible warehouse of uh, volunteers donating stuff. And then people who needed stuff in, in Houston could come and just pick up whatever they needed. So it was great to be there. And then I came back to New York City and I'm off to Philadelphia. So... 
It's good to be there. And then, you know, on the pod coming up, we talked to Congressman Yarmuth from Kentucky mm-hmm. uh, about the debt ceiling, which I didn't know very much about. So, yeah, it's been good, a full week. We were talking about this earlier on the pod. What are your thoughts about this budget deal? It's interesting. I realized, like, how little I knew about sort of the budget-making process until, you know, the government started to collapse before our very eyes. And I was like, I probably should learn something about this. <laughs> so, you know, I'm interested in the debt ceiling. And, like, you know, Trump has essentially said we don't even need a debt ceiling, which some people, uh, you know, agree with in some ways. So that would be interesting to see how it plays out. The DACA decision is still fascinating to see if DACA, like immigration reform, is actually used as the lever by which people get tax cuts. Congress, so, like, I'm interested to see how that actually plays out and hopeful that... Uh, the immigration rights sort of space doesn't get screwed over as a swap for some like really bad tax deal, you know? On the other hand, a billionaire DACA recipient uh, would come out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I- I'm sort of worried, Dre, about what they're going to trade for legalizing these undocumented young Americans, which is like, there's a lot of thought that maybe it's it's the wall, right? They'll get wall funding. And some Democrats will say, okay, we'll give you the wall funding if we get DACA recipients legalized. What Did, did Yarmouth have a thought on that, or, or what did he say? No, he didn't, we talked about the debt ceiling and sort of the process. We didn't talk about, in all the people I've talked to, people haven't had much comments about like what they think, the, or many comments on what they think the swaps will be. I, I personally think that the wall is, is being used as like the shock value that's going to open up space for them to do the crazy tax stuff that we're not even like we don't even know and as you probably have seen is that the ACA repeal is like back on the table in some parts of Congress so like making sure that people aren't too fatigued to keep this fight up I think is really important on our end and I think that you know the Trump folks are being really consistently dramatic that is like fatiguing people so yeah, uh, you know, I think that they are doing that really consciously. And did you see that Omarosa is being locked out of the whole office? That was interesting. I, I love that. No, I, we didn't talk about that. I think so that funny. is terrific. I love that she triggers him. That, that's like the accusation from Kelly's team. And love it. I didn't know that she, you used to work for Hillary. I did. I did. I worked for her for three years. I was her speech I didn't writer. I knew that. Yeah. After Hillary lost in 2008, John hired me at the White House. So this would be like a homecoming of sorts, this interview. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, that's sure. Lovett Home gave her coming. all of her funny lines for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Deray, you're you're also she, you're you're mentioned in the book as well, and she ta- she talks about a very uh, great meeting that she had with you and Brittany. But it, again, it's it's the question you asked, which is she had she talks in the book about like she has all these policies, and it was hard for all these policies to break through. And I think one thing we probably want to ask her is, you know, what did Democrats do? What do we do in the future to make sure that? you know, everything isn't just the Trump show, and then a lot of really good policy actually gets out there as message, which is, uh, you know, I think probably every movement struggles with, right? Yeah, she was, you know, we met her in Cleveland before she did a big event in some swing space, and she was incredible, like very thoughtful, all the right things about the police and race, and like in ways that people I hadn't even anticipated she'd be, and you never got to see that, and that was a real, I think that like, the campaign really just made the wrong calculations about like not allowing the videotapes of those conferences to be released or like those meetings to be released. She didn't do much media with anybody who knew content. She did a lot of culture media, hmm. which was great, but they could have said anything about the content or about policies and they, and like they just, they weren't experts on it. So they wouldn't have pushed. 
So I think that was like a real fault. And you think about the surrogates, it's like people, a lot of people didn't know who Killer Mike was, but they knew him because of Bernie. Like he was an incredible surrogate. People had no clue who Katrina Pearson was, but Katrina was out there for Trump. It's like, who was actually a, the surrogate for Hillary? I don't know, you know? Like, I don't know who was delivering her message in any medium. And I think that they like just played that game wrong. It's a, it's a good point. I don't really, yeah. I, like I remember like Karen Finney being on MSNBC a lot for yeah, her and that's there about was no, it. There was no one person who became the face of the campaign on television. That's yeah, true. Podesta was on that's like right. one or two times, you know, but like who was, even Benghazi, you know, it's like the Benghazi story got so far without there being like a person being like, okay, here's actually what happened. It was yeah. like 50 people and you're like, well, I don't really know. Whereas the right was just so thoughtful about like the same faces just beating her up over and over and over. Yeah, and I think that's also true for the Russian investigation. I mean, when they sort of tried to amp up their messaging on the fact that the big story was the fact that Russia was interfering in our election, I think they sent out Robbie Mook, who was seen as a political staffer, not a national security expert or someone that right. they sort of credentialed along the way to talk right. about these specific issues. Yeah, I mean, you you learn in a campaign that message discipline is everything, and you have to be saying the same thing every single day, even when it gets boring. And when you look back at the coverage of the race, now some of this is the fault of the press, but you know, it was all about her emails. And, and the Trump people and the Republicans and the right-wing media hammered emails and corruption every single day for the entire race. And that's what they got. And I think because Trump offends so many different kinds of people and does so many things wrong and is such a disaster, there's like 50 targets a day on how you hit Trump. You yeah, know? I mean, one thing I was thinking about too from all of this is we need, like, it's almost as if we needed a first part of the sentence to attach what Trump was doing. Like, instead of attacking him for what he said about the cons on its own, like, Trump is a selfish plutocrat, which is why he attacked the cons. Or Trump is a racist <laughs> billionaire who doesn't care about people, which is why he did this. Like we needed one phrase about Trump that we all said over and over again until it stuck. And he was he was so erratic and so undisciplined and said so many crazy things that never happened. Yeah. And look, and this this matters for the future because we're going to face this again in 2018 yeah. and 2020. So hopefully he doesn't last till 2020. Let's not even speak. <laughs> all right. I like that. I like, I like that, that optimism. optimism. <laughs> all right, DeRay, we're taking off. We're going to head up to Chappaqua now. So we're going we're... to the woods, DeRay. <laughs> I, got, I got some gorp. I have some kind bars. I have a uh, I have a canteen filled with water. I have bug spray. We are going to talk to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> cool. Talk to you later. Everyone go download uh, Pod Save the People this week. DeRay's talking to John Yarmouth and a lot more. So, DeRay, take care. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, DeRay. Cool. Talk to you later. Yeah, Bye. All right. That's all the time we have for today. We are uh, headed north for this interview. I've never been in New York City on 9-11. Yeah. It was a strange realization. I know a lot of people will never move on but it does feel like this city so it feels like we're in a different place than we were i know like when we were in the white house and we would such a focus on the attacks and the anniversary every 9-11 in the white house is a big yeah yeah i don't and know it, if that's a healing if it's just the culture moving i don't know i think the 10 year marked the end of marking it every year in the same way as we did before we still mark it but it's different yeah yeah so interesting all right well, everyone that brought the outro down well that's my role here usually the outro is a chance for camaraderie there's a fun video game like music song that plays right now is there yep it's just started okay well we'll talk to you guys later what? don't forget to download the bonus episode download the bonus episode it's gonna be great probably <laughs> <laughs> bye everyone bye
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. 